My name's Robert Brunswick. Generally, people call me Bob. Robert Brunswick is a retired anthropology professor who has been working on studying Deerfield with Professor George June in the Africana Studies program. This project has spanned years and will hopefully be declared a National Historic Site soon. The information is extensive and both professors have been working on it for a very, very long time. So, this episode will be two parts. And so what made you want to study anthropology? Well, I think part of the problem was that when I was uh, just starting out in college, I went to Kansas State University many, many years ago, and I couldn't decide what to do. I started out as a political science major and then kept adding majors. When I was done, I had four majors in college. And anthropology was one of them that I was very interested in. I worked in South Asia studies, which is India and Pakistan and that part of the world, and worked the two together. I ended up, after graduating, uh, ended up at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia in the South Asia studies program got a master's degree, worked on a Ph.D. there. Ultimately, I got my Ph.D. here in Colorado, the University of Colorado, and spent time in Pakistan. I spent a lot of time in the Middle East, in the Arabian Gulf. So deciding what to do, kind of, it kind of fell into, into archaeology. And one of the things that archaeology does is it, it gives you a broad brush stroke of all kinds of disciplines. You look at history, uh, you look at genealogy, you do a lot of scientific research in terms of radiocarbon dating and other kinds of dating techniques. And so you're, you're sort of kind of spread yourself out an awful lot. And that's what I like about it. It gives me an opportunity to move in all kinds of different directions. What I'm doing right now, or what I'm focusing on right now, is working on historic archaeology. Uh, and that is is something that I've done some of in the past, but generally I'm a prehistorian. I, you know, I go back looking at cultures that are tens of thousands of years old, and that's kind of been what I had done previously. So would you say, like, in your college days, you spent more time out in, like, places like Pakistan and stuff like that? In my graduate work, yeah. Uh, As an undergraduate, you often don't get those opportunities. I did do uh, excavations um, in Kansas and places like that. But I I got a lot of opportunity. And and taking so many different majors, I didn't have a lot of opportunity to do field work (laughs) because (laughs) I was busy all the time. That makes sense. (laughs) So what brought you to UNC? When I finished graduate school, and this was uh, back in the uh, in the mid-70s, mm-hmm. there, there weren't many jobs for academics. And so I, I applied for, um, for positions at different universities. None came up. So I originally from Western Kansas. I'm a farm boy. And uh, so my family and, and myself, we went back and started a family uh, on the family ranch for a few years. And then we moved to Colorado. And I taught courses at CSU. I taught some courses at Ames here in Greeley and then got on at UNC in an adjunct position. They didn't have any full-time positions at the time. And then over within a few years, I was able to get into a tenure-track position, and I've been here ever since. Now you're retired from here, but you're still doing Now I'm retired, but I'm not retired yet. <laughs> I, I, I still work six or seven days a week. And a lot of what I did as a, uh, as a professor is that I wrote a lot of grants. Mm-hmm. And, you know, archaeology tasks, it takes money to be able to support students and be able to support research. And when I reached my retirement period, I had a number of grants that were still in progress. I had grants with government agencies in the mountains. And those grants continued on for two or three years past my retirement. 
And so the solution was to, uh, to create a position as a research fellow, which ultimately allowed me to continue to write grants, continue to do grant projects. And about 14 years ago, I uh, fell in with a bad crowd. George June in Africana <laughs> Studies is an old buddy with, of mine. Who's, we've been in the, he's been in my projects and we've been doing things together for an awful long time. And he, among others, introduced me to Deerfield. And uh, that's been occupying a fair amount of my time recently. I do a little prehistoric archaeology once in a while, but right now it's, it's historic archaeology. It has to do with African Americans who settled in Well County at the beginning of the 20th century. And it's a project that absorbs you almost entirely. It's, it's pretty amazing. Deerfield is a huge project. I know that students from Bear News were wanting to do a story on it, but then realized how big it was, so they made an eight-minute feature. So if this podcast episode isn't enough for you, and as a bit of a shameless promotion, please check out the last episode of Bear News to see a super cool package about Deerfield. They worked for weeks on this. And it's been, uh, it, it, it's not just a project. It, it kind of consumes who you are because you begin to identify with people who tried to find a new life, to try to find a new way to, you know, to make their families stable, to overcome a great deal of bias and prejudice of the, you know, the early 20th, early 20th century. And so, and I have also have a very strong connection with the people that formed this little colony in southeastern Weld County, in that I grew up on a farm. And farming was their way to provide something for their families into the future. At least that was the whole, you know, the whole idea of farming this farm colony. And for a while it was very successful. And then it ran into a major collision with forces well beyond their control. And that was the Depression. So economically, the country was, was going through a horrible time. And the uh, climate change. And with the climate change, of course, this area became part of the Great Dust Bowl. People had a very hard time making living at that. My grandparents uh, settled in uh, western Kansas uh, about 1920, 1921, when things were going relatively well after World War One, And then over a 10-year period, things just kind of fell apart in western Kansas also. But they, they were able to continue to live on the land, and they survived the Dust Bowl. But many people in other parts of the country, including Well County, didn't. And they moved away, and they, you know, they uh, created lives elsewhere. It was a wonderful dream. As a matter of fact, the project that, that we developed about 10 years ago is called the Deerfield Dream Project. And uh, these people had a dream for themselves and their children and their descendants. And they did the best they could under the circumstances to make that a reality. And in many cases, it did give them an ability to move on to better things in the life. They were able to build some resources. They were able to acquire land and then sell the land at the very end and be able to go elsewhere to, you know, to continue. And so I think people's lives were bettered by that experience. Can you tell me a little bit about the Deerfield Dream project? Well, the... Uh, it started out with a small town uh, that was created in 1910, gosh, 113 years ago now, in south uh, southeastern Well County. It's about 24 miles east of Greeley, off on the on the south side of US 34, uh, State Highway 34. 
The town site was started by a gentleman by the name of O.T. Jackson. He was a, a businessman. Ultimately, he was from Ohio, but he moved to Colorado in the 1890s and had businesses in the Boulder area, in the Denver area, did a lot of catering, had a hotel, had a, had a small resort for African Americans. And at the time, and, and previous to that, you know, decades before that, there were a number of communities, African-American communities, that were created in the Midwest and the West. And Deerfield was a dream of a number of African-Americans, particularly uh, the business community, the black business community. They wanted to start a colony like this, starting about, I think, the first hint of that took place about 1902, 1903. And they explored the idea of doing that for a long time. But they never could quite decide on what it would look like, where it would be, you know. And O.T. Jackson finally, I think, got sort of a little bit irritated. And he says, okay, I'm going to do it. And so he he sold his farm near Boulder. He sold his property uh, in the Boulder area and uh, came out and bought some land in what later became the Deerfield Colony. And the first thing he did was he founded a town, the town of Deerfield. And it took a few years to be able to bring people in. It took a few years to be able to convert people to say, you know, come to Colorado or, you know, come out of Denver or other places within the state. By 1914 and 1915, he was able to encourage probably 50 or 60 families and individuals to come. Some of them settled in the town. Some of them settled in government land. And this was, this was one of the reasons why he decided that the area that is now Deerfield was the best place to go because it was one of the very few places where there was land that was available for homesteading. This was very late in homesteading. And the Homestead Act was passed in, uh, you know, 1862, and then there was another one that was passed a little bit later, several 30 years later, called the Desert Act. But this allowed people to acquire land by settling on the land, making improvements, building a small house or something like that, and working the land. And within three years, they could own it free and clear. And the Deerfield Colony was about the only place left in Colorado that you could do that. I was out there today. Uh, My wife and I went out to take some photographs for a presentation for a conference uh, on Deerfield that we're having in May. I was looking at two particular homesteads. One was an O.T. Jackson homestead that he had, had, which is east of the the town site. And another one was a a woman who uh, was a co-editor of a black newspaper in Denver, and she, she had gotten a homestead on some land near Deerfield. We were looking at the land in this area that they settled in. There was a reason why it was still open for homestead. It was very sandy soil. As a matter of fact, it's part of a big sand dune, very fine sand dune field that was created by sand blowing during the Ice Age out of the South Platte River, which is located nearby, and piling up. And when it's wet, when you have moisture, when you've got rainfall, you've got snowfall, it's perfectly good agricultural land. But when it dries out a little bit, it's not. <laughs> but one of the, there were two things that, that, that were really amazing was that, you know, people were looking for a place to go and become farmers, to develop sort of a, a, a history for themselves and some uh, substance to their lives and get away from the, you know, the Jim Crow 
era, the things that were going on that were so terrible for African Americans of the day. And Deerfield was one of those places by the the sweat of their own brows and, and the hard work that they would do. That was a place that they could go and there was potentially free land and everybody was interested in, you know, building property because that was security. The other thing that happened is that this, it turned out to be for about 15 years or 20 years, it was probably one of the highest rainfall years we'd had in a long time. Probably kind of trying to estimate from what we, what clues we have from that era, it was probably maybe 20% or 30% greater moisture, rainfall and snowfall than we had today. So that meant that even that dry, even that sandy soil would produce. And and then, of course, came along, the, what came along was World War I. In 1917, people had their farms up and running. They were doing pretty well in raising crops because there was adequate moisture to be able to do that well. So they had cereal grains and vegetables and, and the watermelons and all sorts of things that they were raising and they were, you know, sending off to market. And then when World War I came along, there was a very high demand for agricultural products, food products. We had to feed the soldiers and, and so forth and so on. So what happened was that farm prices went you know, very high. People made a good living. They reinvested that living in more land. They invested it in farm equipment. And that was the time when mechanization was beginning to kind of take hold with internal combustion engines and things like this were being made into tra- you know, very early primitive tractors and things like that. So they were in a period where they were transferring from horses and mules to you know, motor vehicles. It's you know, so kind of a fascinating mm-hmm. thing that was going on at the time. Very big change. A big change, a huge change in their lives. And, and, and the, the, the black colonists were very interested in investing in new opportunities. And one of the things that a lot of the farmers did is they got together and they formed this farm association and bought some harvesting equipment, mechanical harvesting equipment, and hired themselves out. And they helped there. And there were... The neighborhood of Deerfield was really interesting because parts of the area had been already settled for 30 or 40 years, going back to the late 1860s, early 1870s. And between about 1875 and about 1910, when Deerfield was established, there were a wide range of people from other parts of the world that had moved into the area, recent immigrants. There were like eight or 10 different countries from Denmark to Germans from Russia. There were people from Mexico that moved in there, Hispanic peoples that moved in there. So it was a very kind of what we call multi-ethnic community. There were a lot of people, and many of those were recent immigrants. There were people from Scotland, people from the UK, from Canada, things like this. So it was a very kind of a mixed cultural group. And one of the things that we're beginning to kind of feel more confident of is that initially when African Americans began in moving an area into an area where there were no African Americans before. And so the local people had no acquaintance with African Americans. And given the biases of the time and things like this, you know, it could have been it could have been a sad situation. Mm-hmm. And I think there was a little mistrust at the beginning, but within a few years they became as farm people do, uh, reliant on each other, they became neighbors. There was even some intermarriage between some of the families, some of the black families and some of the the European families and certainly the Hispanic families. 
And so it was really an experiment of intracultural, uh, intercultural communication, working together and things like this. As George June will probably tell you, this is his favorite story, mm-hmm. is that there was a dance hall at Deerfield. Mm-hmm. Nothing very fancy, but, you know, it was a place where on weekends people would come to. Uh, there were a couple of local musicians at, at Deerfield that played the fiddle and the mandolin and things like that. And African-American families and non-African-American families of all sorts of backgrounds would come there and they would dance because there wasn't a lot, a whole lot of entertainment going on. <laughs> and as, as George likes to say, you know, they were dancing together on the same dance floor, maybe not with each other. I mean, you know, the, the, the African-American families and the, and the non-African-American families may not have exchanged partners or anything like that. We don't know that yeah. for sure. They may have in some cases. But it was something that kind of tied the overall community together. And so in that instant of time, I think there was more communal spirit that we than we might have expected for that era for that for that period. And the other thing that makes this really interesting is that that was when the Ku Klux Klan was very very big in in Colorado in the late teens and throughout the 1920s. And Greeley itself was a huge center for the Ku Klux Klan uh, during during that historic period. So Deerfield is, is something that is, it's a fascinating story, but we know so little about it. Yeah. We're doing archaeology. We're doing research on all the families, trying to find out where they came from, what their background was, and where their descendants are. And what's happened recently is that We've kind of developed a long-term plan, and it, it's not something we had in our minds when we first started, but it's something that's just kind of evolved. We do, think, we do interdisciplinary research, so we combine all of these different things, and uh, the archaeology that, that I specifically do gives you kind of the material culture thing that you wouldn't find otherwise. You can find documentary records sometimes, and you can find historic photographs, and so there are all kinds of sources of things that you can use. But the archaeology gives you a, a unique, unique picture on the foods that they ate, the, the kinds of things that they wore, the clothing that they wore. We find buttons and we find all sorts of things that tell us about, you know, the, what they were wearing, their jewelry and things like this. We excavate those things, the tools that they used. And so we get that picture along with everything else kind of pulled together. And then what's evolved in the last two and a half years? And this kind of grows up partly because of our research, because people were becoming increasingly aware of, you know, what Deerfield the town and Deerfield the colony was all about, is that some of our federal legislators got very excited about taking on Deerfield as a project. They had the, 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 these four legislators, two representatives and, and, two, and both of our senators, had been involved in the, the Japanese internment camps of Amache. Mm-hmm in southern Colorado. And they had been very successful at getting Amache becoming part of the National Park Service. It's what we call a national historic site. And so they kind of turned their gaze on Deerfield and they communicated with us about it at the beginning. And we were kind of moving in that direction too. We were thinking, oh, where are we going to go with this long term? And that was, that was really something we wanted to do. And so the two just kind of came together. 
They put legislation into uh, into the House of Representatives first in last January, and then Senate legislation went in with uh, Senator Bennett and Hickenlooper. Joe Neguse was uh, was the representative, and Ken Buck. So those were the four that were with their staffs were were beginning to move Deerfield in that direction. I know I keep saying this, but Deerfield is a huge project and there is so much more to discover. Thank you for listening to Robert, or Bob, Brunswick, talk about some of the history and work he and others have done for Deerfield. Part two will talk about more history and have his podcast idea, so stay tuned. I'm your host, Isabella Marcus Porter, giving you a taste of UNC.